right, guys. Well, as they're wrapping up offering, I invite you to take your Bible back out um, and turn to Isaiah chapter 1 that John read for us earlier. Isaiah chapter 1, I believe it's on page 566. If you're going to use the Bible around you, feel free to uh, turn your Bible on. If you want to use your phone or tablet, whatever it may be, or open up your own, or if you don't have one, um, by all means, um, grab one of the black ones that's going to be around you and take that as our gift. But we're going to walk through this text um, and just briefly look at what does it look like to, to, to worship. And Alex has uh, already unpacked that a, a decent amount for us. And this, the time and mentors for kids, like looking at what does it look like to actually serve the vulnerable in our community. It's all related. So we're going we're gonna to be brief at looking, like, looking at what does it actually look like when we come. What, what is this about when we gather? So as you're finding that, we'll, we'll, we'll walk through that text, Isaiah 1. We're going to read 10 through 20 and kind of walk through that here in just a bit. But um, so in ministry, like most jobs, you kind of got to learn on the fly a bit. You guys been there with your work? You, you kind of, you thought you were trained, you thought you were ready, but you think you learned some hard lessons along the way. I remember uh, I was, I, th- I think I was like a 20, probably 20, 21 year old uh, youth pastor at a traditional Baptist church. And um, I, I learned, uh, I learned a hard lesson. Um, so there had been, there was this lady that I, I didn't, I didn't know. Um, she kind of had a, a reputation in the community as just kind of being one of those gals she didn't mess with, right? She just, she kind of, she just kind of had some spunk to her, if you will. And people kind of knew her as that. And um, anyway, I got to know her through really the school district because we were kind of set up some ministry stuff with the school. And so I got to know her there and, um, you know, like first name basis and um, kind of talked about things there. But then, so then I walk. So one day at, at church, um, between Sunday school and church, I kind of go into different doors. One of those old Baptist churches, there's like 17 entrances. And I usually go through this one. And I end up going through this one. And I run into her and I'm like, hey, and I call her by name. And I'm like, hey, I'm so glad you're here. Like, it's good. It's great to see you. It's it, like, so glad you're visiting with us today. And I was really shocked when her expression completely turned. She called me Sonny. And then she began to just lay into me. And I was like, like she was like, son, she, she goes, she said, Sonny, I'm not a visitor here. This has been my church. I've been coming here longer than you, long before you were even a seed in your mama's womb. Like she just kind of like laid into me because I called her. But she's like, this is my church. How dare you call me? And I was like, well, like, I, so like I've been here two years. I've never seen you before. Like it's not a huge church. Um, and so, man, I, like as soon as she kind of gets done laying into me, I can just feel all the eyes of, it was a late, it was a, like a lady Sunday school class and it was just standing there and I could just feel all their looks like, mm-hmm, like you better stay with the teenagers, Sonny, like you're, there's deep waters here. And I was like, man, it was so totally humiliating. So much so that like she talked to my pastor and was like completely offended. Like I got set down like about, it was a really like big thing. And I, I didn't know what to make of that kind of deal. Uh, she's like, oh, I go here all the time. And so that kind of defensiveness of like, how dare you treat me like I'm a, uh, I'm an outsider or I'm a sinner. Like I, I'm like, I, I'm, a, I'm, I'm one of the people of God. Like I, I go to church all the time and, and, but the rest of her life kind of didn't align with that. And certainly like I hadn't even seen her there. And so that kind of defensiveness and, and response is really um, similar to what we're seeing here in Isaiah chapter one. So God is indicting his people. It, it reads almost like a lawsuit if you kind of read Isaiah chapter 1 where God is, is calling out his children and calling the, all of creation to be the witnesses. As he's indicting his people for really uh, practicing all these rituals and going through this empty worship when there's no substance or power to what they're actually doing. And so um, in this time, like, 
what we see is that God even starts calling his children Sodom and Gomorrah, as Alex mentioned earlier. And if you kind of are familiar with that, that, that language or those cities, you know that they were an ancient, um, there, there were two ancient civilizations who grew to be so wicked that the outcry from, from people around them about their wickedness, about their sexual debauchery, and there's just um, really... Um, Lack of morality in every way. Their outcry, their evil got so bad that God destroyed and wiped them off the face of the earth. And from that point on, they kind of become uh, a bit of a watermark or a poster child for evil. And people point to the, like the rest of scripture will kind of point to them as like, hey, like watch yourself or you'll become like Sodom and Gomorrah or God will punish you like he did Sodom and Gomorrah. And so uh, for God to be talking in this language and to be calling his people Sodom and Gomorrah should give us pause. First of all, you know he's not talking to Sodom and Gomorrah. They're, they're long extinct. He's, he's calling his own people that. And if you look back in verses uh, like 2 and 3 of this text, you'll see that what God is saying is, like, hey, I made for myself a people, a, a children. I, I made for myself children to be called by my own name, and they have wandered away. They, they've, like a child that becomes nothing like his father, nothing like their family values, ends up acting completely different, or like an ox or, or an animal that's supposed to be kind of faithful and, and that kind of thing uh, that doesn't recognize its master's voice anymore or doesn't come home. Like, he, he's saying, I made for myself a people, and they've gone completely astray. They don't know my voice. They don't know me as their master. What he's referring to is, is, as you kind of read the story of the scripture, like the way that God is going to bring about redemption, he's going to make for himself a people. And those people are going to be distinct and set apart, not because of their goodness, but because of who their God is. And they're, they're called to be distinct both morally and ethically as a witness, as kind of a, 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 a light sitting on a hill for the rest of the nations to see this is the true God. So God makes them, calls them out, rescues them, gives them grace, covenants to be their God, to provide for them, to, to um, really be their father. And they don't hold up their end of the deal. They walk away. They end up becoming something that, that doesn't even resemble who their God is. And so in this moment, God is calling a family meeting. He is indicting his people for being completely unmoved by the suffering that is around them, the brokenness in the people that are around them, by being completely selfish and completely self-consumed in the way they're living their life. And yet, all the while, they get defensive, much like the lady in my story. Well, how dare you? How dare you call me Sodom and Gomorrah? Like, you can just hear the people, like, I go to church. And this really becomes the thing that God is going to harp on because they say, well, whoa, whoa, like, we're doing everything you said to do. Like, we're walking through the book of Leviticus. We're offering up the sacrifices you told us to give. We're, we're going through the motions. We're throwing the festivals. We're doing the things you said to do, God. Why are you so mad at us? How dare you say that we're not Christians? How dare you say we're not your people? We're doing what you've said to do. And this brings us to the heart of this passage. And God says, yeah, yeah, you're missing the entire thing. To just go through those rituals, to go through the processes without having the... If they're just doing that and covering over um, an empty and um, really a lifestyle that doesn't represent God, God says... Listen, I'm, I'm not pleased with that just because you're going through the motions. In fact, I'm offended by that. And so really that brings us 
to the question of if we're not just supposed to do this stuff because God says so, then why are we here? Like, why do we gather together? Why do we come to church? Uh, because God confronts exactly their, their processes, their sacrifice, and, and, he, and, he, and he lists off. He says there, in, uh, so after he calls them the, the people of Sodom and Gomorrah, he says, hey, listen to your God. In verse 11, he says, what to me is the multitude of your sacrifices, says the Lord. God says, I've had enough of burnt offerings and rams and the fat of well-fed beasts. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or of lambs or goats. God is saying, like, that, listen, some of you might be here and, and you're here checking it out or somebody made you come or whatever it may be. And, and you've experienced this from church people, right? You've experienced people that claim to be the people of God, but you know them the rest of the time and the things don't align. And you may have said or you certainly have heard that I don't want anything to do with the church because it's full of hypocrites, right? So many of you have experienced this and seen this, and it's the reason that you're, you're hesitant. It's the reason you're guarded. It's the reason you don't really want to be here and you don't really... Uh, you're not really engaged even this morning. And, and what I want you to know is that God's offended too. Okay, that God shares your disdain for a church that does not live out who he calls them to be. God is also offended by hypocrisy. So God is going to call out their sacrifices, their bulls, their festivals, things like that. And it's easy for us to kind of read this. And it's such old language that we're like, well, that's not really us, right? Like, we don't, like, we're not, like, spoiler alert, like, we're not going to kill anything later, right? Like, you're not going to be required to come slaughter your lamb or bring it, like, that, that we don't have to do that anymore. So, like, our, our hands aren't literally covered with blood. And this, so sometimes it doesn't relate. But if you think about our modern-day worship stuff, think about our services, how many of you know of churches that have split over the style of music? Right? How many of you know people have left churches because of what the pastor does or does not wear? We know of churches that are worried about the length of sermon, the amount of songs, the type of instrumentation, or that there's any instrumentation at all. And, and it's easy to kind of see that we're actually not that different than them. Like, we get far more concerned about the form of our worship than the quality of our lives. Okay? What, what, what we do have in common with them is that we get far more concerned about the form of our worship than we are about the quality of of our lives and our, our relationship with God. And that's what God is indicting here. That's what he's calling out in them. And he's saying, um, like, that's not what it's about. Like, I'm not just pleased when you go through ritual for the sake of ritual's sake. Like, these rituals have a meaning, and they're supposed to, they're, they're supposed to be an outward action of, that is reflective of an inward posture. They're supposed to be reminders that we do corporately as a church to, to shape who we are in our relationships before God. So God goes on then in verse 12, and he says this. He says, when you come to appear before me, who has required this trampling of my courts? So in this, we see two things. First of all, that God is saying, like, listen, not just coming for the sake of coming, no heart behind it. You're just doing your thing. 
That's like trampling in my courts. It's not, it, it's not good for you. It's not good for anybody. And, and then the second thing we see is, is that what God says is the reason that we gather is what? To appear before him. When you come to appear before your God, like that's the heart of worship. That's what the point of today's gathering is. So we need to ask ourselves, in light of this text, we need to let this text examine us. I want to ask you, why do you come to to church service? Why do you come to the Sunday gathering? Is it because it's what you're supposed to do? Your parents have always told you, your family is always gone, or, or whatever, your spouse, like, or, or is it to, to hear good music? If we've been in a season of not having a consistent worship leader here, and there's been ebbs and flows of differences and styles and quality, and, and, it's, and it's revealed for some folks that that's, we're more concerned about the form of worship than we are the object of our worship, and therefore the quality of our lives and the relationship with the object of our worship. Do you come to hear an entertaining or maybe an uplifting sermon? Or for a lot of us, it's just really to kind of pay penance and appease our guilt, right? Come in here because we feel guilty if we don't. So ask yourself that question, why do you come here? Why do you come to our weekly gatherings? Why do we come to worship? And I want you to hear This question, or really this statement from God, like, when you come to appear before me, like, that's a totally different thing. I want you to let that set there for you and and, and let this just kind of resonate for a minute. When you put it that way, like, when we're coming to appear before our God, now now it's really difficult or impossible to kind of have the same uh, form of flippantness to how we view church, whether we come or not, what we say about it. It's really hard to uh, maintain that posture of entitlement and, and critical uh, whistleblowing. Well, they didn't do this right, or they should do this right, or not say this, or say that, or sing this, or do that, or whatever. Like When we realize that we're coming before a holy God, and that's why we've gathered here, all of a sudden it's a totally different posture that we come in here with. You read about the times where people even have a vision of God. Just flip over a few chapters in this afternoon and read Isaiah chapter 6. Or read about any time even an angel shows up that's been in the presence of God. What's the immediate reaction of the people they show up to? They hit their face, right? They hit their face in worship. And woe is me is almost their involuntary response that I don't belong in the presence of this holy God, and if he doesn't do something, I will be destroyed. So when we realize that's why we're coming here, all of a sudden there's a different posture, right? There's a different way in which we approach our time together. To appear before our God. And I've heard it said often, you may have said this, you've heard people say, like, well, I, I can appear before God. I can meet with God on my own, right? Out in nature, or, or in my own individual time, right? Like, we've all heard things like that. And I would agree with you, you, t- you totally can. But there's something sacred and, and really commanded in the scripture where we gather together as a people. We gather as a church in unity. We gather as a people. And, and listen, it, 
it multiplies and kind of uh, compounds the presence of God. God. God's spirit dwells where? Inside of us, right? So when, when the saints gather, there, there's a cumulative effect of like, okay, God's presence is growing, and it's more and more. And then we serve one another with the gifts God has given us. And all of a sudden, like, there's something sacred that happens when the church gathers, and we realize we're before our God. So that's the reason that we gather. That's the, the heart behind our worship. So we have to guard ourselves against going through the motions sing this many songs, preach for this long, give this much, those types of things that we're, we're tempted to slip into. This is exactly what he condemns. As we read on in verse 13, he says, Bring no more vain offerings. Incense is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath and the calling of convocations, I cannot endure iniquity and solemn assembly. You need to know that those are all things God had commanded them to do back in Leviticus. God's saying, like, I can't put up with it anymore. But what he says is, I cannot endure iniquity and solemn assembly. Like, if you kind of look at that, it's at first perplexing. Because to hear God say, like, I can't stand when you're sinful. Like, that's not the heart of what he's saying here, right? Because clearly God can bear with iniquity and sin and those who have done wrong. Right? He does that. Like, that's the whole story of the Bible. That, that God loves faithfully. His people rebel consistently. And he bears with them. Okay, we see as Jesus comes and brings the kingdom to bear on, on people on earth, as we read the Gospels, that consistently sinners, people that the world has shunned and, and gone away with, Jesus embraces with grace and love. Right? So it, it's not that he can't bear with iniquity. It's, you get to force these two things together and hear what he's saying. I can't bear with iniquity and solemn assembly. So what he's saying is, when you act like you're not sinful, when you act entitled to be in my presence... And you just keep going through the motions and there's no repentance. There's no uh, crying out, woe is me. They're, they're, when you don't address your sin and you just go through the motions and go through the service and then go back into living your life the way you did, God says, that's going to make me sick. I can't bear with iniquity and solemn assembly at the same time. I want you to have this picture of these people who have no regard for, for the Lord in the rest of their life, but they're going through these very elaborate rituals and bringing these very costly sacrifices. Like they're bringing good sacrifices, fat offerings, like the firstborn. Like they're doing, they're, they're, they're really making the rest of us look bad with what they're bringing to God, but there's a disconnect there with their life and their, their sacrifice or their worship. So we need to ask ourselves a question. Is there a disconnect in our own life? Is there a disconnect between who we are here and the other six days of the week? Is there a disconnect between how we act and what we do and the posture that we have, the things we'll say to our kids, that say to our, like, is there a difference here than the rest of our, our lives? Is there a disconnect there? Like, There's really no wonder that there's this mass exodus of young adults that whenever they leave mom and dad's house, they stop going to church, right? And we mourn this and we talk about this often. And I think it's pretty easy to, to kind of pinpoint. Like, if the whole point is just them being in church, why would they keep going whenever they leave your house? Like, we need to ask ourselves, like, have the people around us seen us 
live a life of repentance? Have they seen us repent? Have they seen us rely on God and thirst for God and read God's word and posture ourselves in such a way that we need God? Have they seen that in our everyday life and at home? Or is it just, is it just about going to church? Because if they don't see how it kind of penetrates and permeates into the rest of our life, there's really no value in that. And so they're going to find better things to do on their Sunday morning, like sleep. We've got to examine and ask, is there a disconnect between like, the, our, our forms of worship and our quality of life? Is there, is there a divide there that, that we need to own and process and, and repent of? So again, have have people around you, have they seen you repent, humbly cry out, rely on God? Does the gospel so penetrate your life that you humbly give yourself to those in need? We're not going to belabor this point because we've kind of covered it in the past few weeks. But verse 15 says that their hands are full of blood. Now, that may seem like strong language. And and not only is there this reality and you're thinking, well, my hands aren't covered in blood. But but really what God is saying is like when you ignore the, the vulnerable and the innocent that are crying out for your help, their blood is on your hands. Hey, not only is there a reality of Jesus says, hey, I know you've heard don't murder, but I'm telling you even to be angry at your brother, you've already committed murder in your heart. So there's that reality of like we're an angry people and a, and a jealous people, but there's also the reality we, we, we looked at last week. I would encourage you to, to uh, listen to last week's sermon online where, where God makes it really clear that the blood of the innocent is crying out to those who had the means to help them but did not. And, and really what we see is that Matthew 25 says, Jesus says, listen, whatever you did to the least of these or didn't do, if you ignore them, don't serve them, look the other way, you're actually doing that unto me. What he's saying is the blood of the vulnerable, those who are crying out for help, it's on our hands. So the big idea is that the gospel doesn't permeate our everyday life, then our offerings, our gatherings are in vain. He says they're empty. And God is offended by him. So what do we do? We stop going to church. That'd be a weird sermon, right? Weird application point. I think we, uh, we see a really good picture of what it's supposed to look like in a guy named David. King David is this really of a paradox of a man. But the Bible says he was a man after God's own heart. And what we see is that here's this man that that God holds up as as one who's after his own heart. But as we look at his story and we're honest about who he was, and specifically as we read Psalm 51, I think we get some um, insight into what it has actually looked like to come before our God. David writes this psalm after committing a horrible series of sins that, that is from adultery to then murder to cover up his adultery and lying. I mean, like it, whatever you've done, whatever you're feeling shame over, you need to know that like, man, this mess from David's life is, is bad. And yet this is what he says in Psalm 51, verse 16 and 17, as he's coming to God, coming back into the presence of God in repentance. Psalm 51, verse 16 says, For for you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. Think about 
He's the king. He can give any amount of sacrifice, any amount of festival. He could do whatever he needed to do. If that's what got him right with God, like he, could, he had the means to take care of it. He says, you don't delight in that or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. Verse 17, the sacrifices of God are what? Say this with me, are broken spirit. A broken and contrite heart, oh God, you will not despise. That's the big idea. You read part of Isaiah and you'd be like, man, so we have to wait until we're doing perfect before we can come be in God's presence? That's not what he's saying. He's saying don't act like you don't have any sin and then come in here and go through the motions and act like we're all good. That, the, the rituals, the sacrifices, the things you're going through, they have a meaning and a purpose, but they're not the means in and of themselves. They're not the end in and of themselves. They are a means, right? There's something we do to, to show the inward relationship that we have to God and what God has done for us and our response to him. But just doing those things doesn't make us right with God. David says what God desires is a broken and contrite heart, really, of repentance. So what he's saying is when you come into church, you need to know you're coming before a holy God. That's the heart of worship. And when you come before a holy God, you shouldn't be able to sit there unmoved. You shouldn't be able to sit there comfortably and feel like you deserve to be here. The holiness of God that we sing in the songs that we read in the scriptures should remind us not only of his goodness, but of our sinfulness. And, we, and it doesn't mean we, we, we tuck our tails and run. Like We have to stay in that tension and know that, that what he's inviting us to is to be changed. It's to move into his grace. This is how the passage, flip back to Isaiah if you had turned there. This is how the passage ends. Verse 16 of Isaiah chapter 1. Wash yourselves, make yourselves clean, remove the evil of your deeds from before my eyes. Cease to do evil, learn to do good, seek justice, correct oppression, bring justice to the fatherless, plead the widow's case. So he's saying, hey, start living what you're, what you're singing, preaching, like start, start living out the message of the gospel. But then he says this, and this is the good news of the gospel. Verse 18, come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white, as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. That's what God says to his people is such grace. He says, hey, come, come and bring to me your blood-filled hands, and I'll wash them in the blood of the Lamb, Jesus Christ, and you'll be made new. You'll be made So what Jesus is inviting his people to, what God is inviting the people of Israel and what still stands for us today is to come into his presence, to feel the weight of his holiness, and then to respond in repentance, to come and bring ourselves as an offering to God and allow God to wash us clean, to purify us of our sins. Though our sins be as scarlet, he'll make us white as snow. This is the good news of the gospel. This is our God. He's righteous and he's just and he's calling out his children 
but then bearing with them, inviting them to, to hand him their sins so that he can hand them his righteousness. So church, this is our opportunity to enter into his presence each week, to repent of our sins, to sing of his grace. Like if we truly enter into his presence, like we, we get that, like we're not going to be unmoved by worship then. Right? Like if we get this, if we're in the presence of a holy God and we're here and we, we are a sinful people, like we should be, we should feel the weight of our sin and then immediately feel the joy of the gospel, of the grace, that he accepts us through Jesus, that he does require righteousness and perfectness, but he provides that for us in Jesus. And we should stand up and join in worship and, and, and we should be overwhelmed with emotion and respond to his mercy and his grace. You need to understand those words. Like mercy means not getting something you deserve. What we deserve is to be like Sodom and Gomorrah, right? To be completely wiped off the face of the earth. Grace goes a step further though. It means to get something that we don't, like to be given something, rewarded with something that we never have earned. Not only does he forgive us of our sins and then tolerate us, he makes us new. He gives us his righteousness, embraces us, adopts us as his children, and will make us new. We're transformed from one degree of glory to another. How? By beholding the goodness of Jesus. That's why we gather. We gaze at him together. We enter into his presence. We feel the weight of our sins. We repent, and we, we become more and more like him. That each week we should leave here with conviction, yes, but acceptance and empowerment to become more and more like Jesus. So church, that's our opportunity. That's the invitation from Jesus is not go through the motions. But we should expect to see Jesus here. We should expect to be in the presence of God and to be changed by that. And if you're here and you're not a Christian, you're just checking out the faith, like you need to know this is our God. Again, as I said, he also was offended at the hypocrisy of his people. He's a good father who calls out the sins of his people. He's not content with that hypocrisy to continue. But you need to know this. As we've said, we're not here because we got it all together. We're, we are sinners saved by Jesus. As we said before, like we're, we're kind of like beggars who have found bread, and we're just telling others where it is. But you need to understand that your posture before the living God needs to be dealt with. that you too are sinful. And we're not here to hang that over you in pride like, I just, like this all just said, the church should be humble, right? But you need to know that you, like God doesn't owe you anything. But the invitation of the gospel is not just for his church, it's not just for the elite, it's not for, like it's none of that. We were sinners saved by grace and that same grace is available to you today. No matter what you've done, who you are, where you've been, how much you've been hiding, what, you, what no one's told you, the mess you've made of your life, the invitation of the gospel is God says, hey, bring me, bring me your, your stained hands. I know. I can, like, here's the good news. You don't have to hide. Because God already sees you. He knows you. He knows what's been done to you. He knows what you've done to others. He knows the mess you've made. And he's not standing back waiting for you to fix it. He's come to us. That's the good news of the gospel, that Jesus came to us to enter into our mess, to walk with us, to write a new story, to go to the cross for us, 
to move us out of the way and to put himself under God's wrath so that he could give us life. So you need to know the invitation is to come. Bring me your filthy hands. Let us reason together, God says. Though your sins be as scarlet, they can be made white as snow. Let's pray. God, thank you for the truth of the gospel. Would you move us to respond accordingly, Lord? Would you move us to trust in you and not ourselves? Would your spirit fall and just do work in in each individual's heart here, Lord? And... um, Empower us with the faith to respond during this time. We ask and hope it in Jesus' name. Amen. So the. Uh-